All right, I want to invite everybody to stand and uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Keith, I appreciate your, your time, your prayers, and your presence. So thank you so very much. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. This is Paul's words to the Corinthian church. This is what Paul says, and he's referring to events of the Old Testament. Look what Paul says, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. I'm going to read it again. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for whose instruction? Our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. You may be seated. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8. It's what Tina shared with us or read to us earlier. But I've got a slide I want to show you. It's 365-1511-Y. Almost looks like a phone number. 365-1511. And we've been talking a lot over the past several weeks about the importance of reading God's word. And that simple phrase, we read God's written word to encounter the living word who is Jesus. This book, which took over 1,600 years to write in three different continents, three different languages by at least 40 different, different authors point to one person. Who is that? It's Jesus. And we read his written word to encounter Christ. And I've shared with you in past, and all most of us know, I need to read my Bible. I should read my Bible. I should read my Bible. I want to encourage you, don't kill yourself with the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. The false guilt. None of us are perfect. And reading our Bible doesn't make you a better Christian, okay? Now, the greatest way for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus is reading the Bible. If we do not read God's word, we're not going to grow as lovers of Jesus. I can eat all the greatest, best food in the world, but it is not going to help Jorge the food I eat, okay? I can have the best, healthiest diet on the planet, And that's not going to do Jorge a hill of beans, refried or not. Jorge has to eat for himself, just like I have to eat for myself. Just like all of us, we need to consume God's word. What are these numbers and why? If we were to read the Bible 365 days out of the year for 15 minutes a day, we would read the whole Bible in one year. What's the one one? One chapter, one verse. Get a journal. Cost a dollar fifty at Walmart. A simple little writing journal, and then write down why does that verse speak to you. I want to encourage all of us, and none of us are going to read the Bible three hundred sixty-five days out of the year. We're going to miss days, but three sixty-five, fifteen, one 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 chapter a day for 15 minutes and then write down one verse and then why does it speak to you and write that paragraph down. Why? Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, it's written for our instruction. I got a quick little story to share with you. Growing up, I went to a tiny little Episcopal school, private school for elementary school. 
There were like 10 to maybe 15 kids in each class. And when I got into what's called junior high, okay, that's seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. My class was the largest class. We had over 20 students in the seventh grade class. The eighth grade class had about the same. The ninth grade class, which was my older brother's class, consisted of seven students. Six of them were boys. Now, our junior high basketball team at the Episcopal Day School, also known as EDS, we lined up for everybody's homecoming because that junior high would get beat 100 to 10, 80 to 27, 50 to 12. We were terrible. We just were. Part of it was because there were hardly any kids in the junior high class. But my brother's class had three or four boys, young men, teenagers who had gone through puberty and they were big and they were ninth graders. The eighth grade class had a couple guys that were really good. The seventh grade class, we had a couple kids that actually good. So we actually had a decent ball team my seventh grade year. We got a new coach. He was the director of the local YMCA. He was a young African-American man from Chicago. He played college basketball. I thought he was better than Michael Jordan and LeBron James, even though LeBron James hadn't even been born yet. He was kind of tall. He had huge muscles. He could shoot. He could hang on the rim. And he was an amazing coach. I'll never forget our very first game. We played the largest school in our town, over a thousand students. And I can remember going onto the court, knowing that we were good and knowing that we were well coached because of our new coach. He made us believe that we could win. And I can remember this, high, this junior high, they put their C team in first. I mean, kids that were way worse than we were. And within three or four minutes, we were up by 20 points. They called a timeout. They put their A team in. And we lost that game by one point. The very next game, the other big local school in town, they didn't put their C team in against us. They put their best team in. Again, we lost by just a few points. We didn't win all of our games, but we won well over most of them. And we were known as the little bitty junior high in the city that you didn't want to mess with. Why? Because we had a coach that made us believe that we could play. Now, I'm really lifting this coach up as an amazing coach. He actually was the best coach I've ever had. And I've had a lot of coaches. But you know what he was really good at? Teaching history. He was my American history teacher in seventh grade. And I loved Coach Lowe. I loved him so much and the way he taught history that when I went to college, I wanted to be a history teacher and I wanted to coach basketball. And the main reason was because of him. And I'll never forget when we studied the Civil War, I can, I still remember this. He put the advantages of the North and he had all these reasons why the North was going to win. And he had the advantages of the South. And one of the reasons, one of the advantages that the South had was that they had a home court advantage. I mean, as a basketball player, oh, I recognize that. He was an amazing teacher who taught history and he brought it alive. And just like here in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul tells the Corinthian church, All of these things were written for our instruction. So with that in mind, we're going to jump to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're not going to, I'm not going to make you guys stand up here. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 
12. Now, Tina only read verses 1 through 8, but this is our passage for today. It's a historical book. But there's two words I want to share with you in two definitions. One is called exegesis. Can you say exegesis? Exegesis. Right here, exegesis. It'll say, exegesis is the process of discovering and understanding the original and intended meaning of a scripture passage. Now, you'll hear this word, exegesis. Say it. All right, some of you guys, you need to work on it, okay? You need to go back to English class, and they learn you better, okay? Exegesis is the big word that you'll learn in seminary. It's understanding. It's the process of understanding the original meaning of a scripture passage. Now, there's another big word up there called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how to properly interpret the meaning of the passage. So when we study the Bible, we always need to exegete it. We need to understand What is the original meaning of every single text? Because you can pull a verse out here, a story out of the Bible here, and get it all wrong. Interpret it your way. And that's what most of the culture is doing today. Not only do we need to understand the original meaning, we then need to do a hermeneutic with it. We need to understand how to properly interpret that meaning in order to apply it to our lives. Okay, technical terms. But that's what we're going to do today. And that's what we should do every single time we read God's word. What's the original meaning of the passage? And then what does it mean? And how do I apply it to my life? Right here, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're actually going to start in verse 53 of chapter 7. Right here it says, When the seven months came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. And they asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. And while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon. How long? About six hours. Now the book of the law. Traditionally, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some would just say it's just the book of Deuteronomy. But from sunup until lunchtime at the local buffet, Ezra stood with the law in front of him and everybody, men, women, Everyone stood. Could you imagine? Whoo, Ezra, can you speed this up? That's what happened. Now, what is going on with this context? I'm going to share some dates with you. They might not make a whole lot of sense to you, but just a quick, quick review. God called Abraham, who is the father of all the Jews of the Israelites, who is living in what we call today Babylon. And he called him west and he promised him, descendants, more numerous than the stars, and a land. And he promised Abraham that through your descendants, I'll bless all the peoples of the earth. So Abraham traveled to Canaan, present day Israel. He had offspring and they had offspring. Joseph was sold into slavery down to Egypt. And if you've read your Bible, you know the history. The the Jewish people, 70 in total, moved to Egypt and over generations became millions of people. They were enslaved in Egypt as slaves. And then God called Moses 
to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And with God's outstretched arm and hand, he broke the nation of Egypt. He set his people free. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And for 40 years, they wandered the desert because of their unbelief and disobedience. They then enter into the promised land. This is God's people, his chosen people, the people of Israel. These are our spiritual descendants. Or ancestors, sorry, we are their descendants. And God promised them a people and a nation and land. And he made a covenant with them. It's the old covenant. But God's people, because they were born after Genesis 3, were sinful, rebellious, and were broken. And God's people, Israel, the Jewish nation, they sinned against God. They rebelled against God. And God told them, if you turn your back on me, if you break my covenant, I will judge you. Choose this day to follow and obey me or to follow after the gods of the land. And when you read the Old Testament for centuries, if you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see the story of Israel when they're in the promised land as an established kingdom. There'll be generations who love God and they follow him. And there'll be generations that are just horrific, awful, wretched, sinful practices, turning their back on Yahweh, following after the Baals and Asherahs and the other gods around. And generation after generation, God sent the prophets, calling them back to repentance. Sometimes they would listen. Sometimes they wouldn't. And God prophesied. He said that he would destroy them as a nation. He would judge them. But 70 years of exile, after those 70 years, they would return and he would reestablish a remnant. So there's a bunch of dates here. It's a little bit of history written for our instruction. In 586 BC, that's before Christ, the Babylonians came into Judah, which is southern Israel, They burned and destroyed the temple to the ground, and they destroyed Jerusalem. In 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire that destroyed Judah, Israel, was taken over by the Persian Mede Empire. And King Cyrus became the king of the Persian Empire. And he began to let the Jewish people return back to Israel. And in 535 BC, a small group of Israelites, of Jewish people, went back to Jerusalem and they began to build the temple again. Now, Jerusalem was decimated. And they slowly began to build that temple back in 516 BC, 70 years later. And God prophesied through the prophet of Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years. 586, the temple was destroyed. In 516, 70 years later, the temple was finished. Is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. In 455 BC, Ezra returns to Jerusalem to begin to teach the people. And then in 445 BC, Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer of the king of the Persian Empire, 
asked permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. That's the historical context. For some of us, we're like, history, who cares? That's okay. But as the old saying goes, if we forget our past, we are bound to repeat it. This is the context of this passage right here. Jerusalem was devastated, was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Tens of thousands of Israelites were scattered all throughout the ruling nations. And then they slowly began to migrate back, commissioned by the Persian king to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. You can read the story in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it discusses the events 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And it covers about a 150-year span when you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, the, the priest Ezra, and Nehemiah, they were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. And right here, we see both of them in this passage here. Tina read it, and we're not going to reread it again, but it says on the first day of the seventh month. Now, the seventh month was a huge month because in the seventh month, there was a religious festival called the Feast of Booths. It sounds weird to us, but the Jews would celebrate for a whole week God's salvation of when he rescued them from Egypt. He rescued them from slavery. That is a forerunner of us coming together every single Sunday, celebrating the fact that God, through Jesus, has rescued and saved us from slavery of sin and death. The seventh month was a huge month of celebration for the Jews. But here's what's going on around chapter 8. The Jewish people are weak. They're tiny, they're small. About 50,000 people returned from Babylon. They returned back to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They have no king. They have no traditions. They have no customs. They have no culture. Everything was destroyed. There's oppression from the rich against the poor. The surrounding people groups that live around Israel, they hate Israel. They don't trust Israel. There's what's called syncretism, which has been the blending of religions all around. And there's all this pressure on these Jewish people who've just migrated back to become like everyone else. Who here is from or has lived in a different country? How do you feel not living in your home country? You might not understand the language, the customs, their traditions. These Jewish people are coming back to their homeland but they're not at home. I'll never forget when I came back to the United States, people would ask me, how does it feel being home? And I didn't know how to respond because inside I'm like, I'm not at home. My home is Mexico. I look and sound real Southern and I'm white with blue eyes and a lot of hair in my arms, but this isn't home. And people would be so excited that I came home. But my home, I just sold my house I lived in for 15, 16 years. My kids were born there. Okay? So these Jewish people have come home, but it's not their home. But it's where God has called them. And the temple is finished. And the walls have been built around Jerusalem. Now, in our day and age, in our culture, we talk about building walls. Woo, you want a political discussion? 
But see, we're interpreting our current context and transposing it upon that time and culture. You see, cities and towns without walls back then were unprotected, were easy attacks for enemies. And back then, war, just like today, was horrific. There was no mercy. And there were no Genevan Accords for armies to do war civilly, which doesn't make sense anyway. So to have the walls built and finished around Jerusalem meant security and safety and protection. And then the temple's built so they can start the sacrifices again and actually be forgiven. There is a stirring in the heart of this remnant of Jewish people who've returned. There's a stirring of revival and renewal and of transformation. They can feel it. They can sense it that God is getting ready to do something powerful. And so they ask Ezra, who's been living there for over 10 years, we want you to read God's word. And so it says from sunup until noonday, he read. And then here's something very powerful right here. Here in verse 6. And verse 6 here, and whoo, this print on this Bible is tiny. Verse 6 says, Ezra, actually right before in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. Guys, there's part of our tradition that we do every single Sunday is found in these verses here. Ezra stands on a platform. And he's in view of everyone. And he's got God's word, the scroll. In view of everyone, he opens it up. What do we do every Sunday? Where does the preacher stand? Those who read scripture, where are we? We're on the platform in view of everyone. You see, people think that tradition is bad. Tradition can be bad. But in our day and age now, we really poo-poo tradition. But tradition can be awesome. If it's rooted in God's word, if it's rooted in truth. But see, a lot of us think that tradition is rigid. It's not spirit-led nor spirit-filled. And so we want to reject tradition. When in reality, tradition can be an anchor to our faith. Standing up here in view of all of you all comes from this tradition right here. And he read the passage and right here in verse six or in verse five, Ezra opened the book in full view of the people since he was elevated above everyone. He opened it and all the people stood up. Let's stand. Let's stand. All the people stood up. Now, I'm not going to make you do everything in this next verse, okay? Because we don't have the space. Verse 6 says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Did he sing? Did he just pray? What he said, God, you're awesome. You're great. But he blessed the Lord. And with their hands lifted high, all the people said, if you can do it, raise your hands high. Amen and amen. I always wonder in ball games, people go crazy when a touchdown is scored. And it's a synthetic pigskin that's crossing chalk line. And people go crazy, spending billions of dollars. And in church, amen, hallelujah. Uh, what do people think about me if I raise my hands? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, Young said, I'm going to make y'all feel really bad. I don't want to. But we'll go crazy over sports, and I love sports. And then we get real inhibited when it comes to praising Jesus. We sang with our hands held high, waiting here for you. 
I tell you what, the Pentecostals in Mexico taught me one thing, and that's the power of waiting in God's presence. Some of our church services would go two, three hours long. Whew! Jesus would show up. The people would raise their hands and pray, amen and amen. And they would kneel, they knelt and they worshiped with their faces to the ground. Now, if you all were to kneel between these pews, you'd hit your head on the pew, okay? But there is this amazing worship service. And then it repeats it again. And I'm not, you know, go to the next verse, verse seven. I'm going to try some of these names. Sometimes we wonder what Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Tina, you're way better than me. These were Levites. Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel that were set apart to teach and disciple the people of God, God's word. And it's, I asked the question, Lord, why Holy Spirit inspired Nehemiah to write the names of these, I think it's 14 men. And it says in verse 7 and 8 that they go throughout the people. So as Ezra, oh, I can't walk around because the camera, shoot. As Ezra would stand up here and he would read, these 13 men were all throughout the people and there's thousands teaching the people, interpreting for those who didn't understand Ancient Hebrew. Sometimes I wonder, would they read a chapter and then break up into small groups and let these Levites teach people and ask questions? There's this interaction going on. And it's vital. There is no such thing as a lone Christian, a lone ranger Christian. We need the body. And if COVID has taught us anything, we don't do well by ourselves. We just don't. And one of our cultural sins as North Americans is that rugged individualism that many of us were born into. Me and Jesus. And it doesn't work. It's one of the reasons why we have Keith with us. It's because we need one another. The body, the finger needs the hand and needs the arm. That needs the heart and the mind to truly function. I decided to go running on Friday. Lord, please help me never do that again. My ankle's very sore. I forget that I'm 50. Okay? It's funny, right, Ken? We need each other. So as Ezra's reading these Levites, they're breaking out all throughout this group of thousands, teaching them, answering questions, asking questions. I'll say this. If you're not in a small group, why? Get involved in the small group. we got small groups here on Sunday morning. We have several home groups. Johnny and I are praying and talking about starting more home groups. We need to be in small groups. Sunday at 1045 is not enough. It's not enough. And we need to interact with the body. Doing it on the couch online at times is necessary. But that's like eating one graham cracker every two weeks. We need the body. How did the people respond? Here at the end. As Ezra is reading God's word, as the Levites Levites are teaching, as they're interacting with the congregation, the community, here in verse 9, look at what it says. Nehemiah, the governor, 
Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. What's going on? Do not mourn or weep. You see, this small remnant of Jewish believers, they have nothing. They're in a new land. Their nation has been destroyed and broken, has been judged. Many of them are biblically illiterate. And as Ezra is reading God's word and as they're teaching and interpreting for him, they're pierced to the heart of God's holiness and God's judgment of their own sin. And they begin to weep and cry for the brokenness that they find themselves in. There are two passages and we'll have to, we won't even look at them, but they're both found in Acts. Paul and Silas travel to Berea. And it says that the Jewish people, the people in Berea were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they studied the scriptures and they looked and they studied what Paul was saying. And they took to heart what Paul was saying. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached Christ crucified, buried and risen from the dead, it says that the people were, were convicted to the heart and they asked, brothers, what should we do? You see, God's word is living and it's active and it's true and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And when we proclaim his word, when we teach his word, Holy Spirit brings conviction. And this remnant of Jewish people, they were cut to the heart that they were living in sin and walking in sin and suffering the sins and consequences of their ancestors. And they were broken because they knew they weren't walking in faithfulness. Yet Ezra and these Levites and Nehemiah, they knew that God's heart above all things is for reconciliation and restoration. That is God's heart for you and for me. He longs for relationship. God doesn't just demand that he is right, but he longs for relationship. The silly example I use all the time, you're on Interstate 65, you're going 65 miles an hour, you got your seatbelt on and your hand is at 10 o'clock on the steering wheel and at 2 o'clock on the steering wheel. That is the legal position that your hands are supposed to be in when you're driving your car, okay? And you're going 65 miles an hour. Now you're doing everything right and you're in the right lane of the interstate. And you see an 18-wheeler truck going 150 miles an hour in your lane coming at you. Now you can say, I'm right, he's wrong. I'm right, he's wrong. That's right, you're dead right unless you forgive that driver. You forgive him and get over and let him pass by. You see, God is right and he's holy and he's righteous and he's true. He has every right to judge each and every one of us and actually send us to hell. If God were truly just with no mercy, all of us deserve hell. If God chose to save only one human, that would be merciful. We have so offended him by our sin and our selfishness and self-righteousness. We don't deserve mercy or forgiveness. But because of Jesus' great grace and his goodness and his mercy and God's great steadfast love for us, he forgives and he offers forgiveness and renewal. And that's what was happening here. Ezra and Nehemiah, they knew that was God's heart. And as the people were crying and weeping for their own sin, they were encouraging them, don't cry, don't weep. 
This is a holy day. This is God's day. Celebrate because God has forgiven you. That's one of the reasons why we can stand with our hands held high in worship. And with that, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. It's late. We're going to be last at the buffet, okay? But here's the deal. This is homework, Mary Barnes, and for anyone else who wants to, read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 8. Read Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. A massive revival breaks out within these people. Almost the entire chapter of chapter 9 is a prayer of repentance, confession, and worship. As the people read God's word, they were so cut to the heart and convicted that they repented, they celebrated, and they gave their lives back to the Lord and received his forgiveness. My prayer for each and every one of us is we sin and we blow it every day. And we have a choice. We can, we can harden our hearts and just say, as we say in Spanish, así, es, así soy yo, así es la vida. That's just the way life is. That's the way I am. Or we can come to Jesus' feet in humble repentance, conviction, and maybe weeping. And yet worship and joy because through Christ, we are forgiven, we are renewed, and we are revived. It's through his presence and his power and his goodness and his grace. We don't deserve it and we haven't earned it. But boy, our Heavenly Father, he wants to give it. Let us stand and let us worship. Mm-hmm.